Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans this morning. Romans chapter 4, we want to look at verses 18 through 25, kind of picking up on 17 through 25. Abraham, a, a model of faith, uh, is in view here. The nature of saving faith is what I've titled the message here. And let's ask the Lord to bless. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Now, minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for us as a people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I note here as far as uh, the theme of Romans, it's the righteousness of God slash the gospel of God. And we have worked our way through that to that section in 321 through 521. Uh, justification by grace through faith. After the introductory prologue in Romans 1, uh, 1 through 17, Paul then launches into his first major subject in the letter, namely the subject of sin, showing that indeed all are under the condemnation of sin, to jump to the chase here, uh, to where he ends up, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is mankind's universal problem, our sin problem. Well, God has an answer to our sin problem, uh, namely Jesus, as Kent has already covered for us very thoroughly. But uh, two words really bring out the answer that God has provided in Jesus. That's the word redemption, which means to free by paying a price. And, of course, this relates to the cross, that was the price that was paid, the death of Christ. The other word is propitiation, uh, to appease <clears throat> to appease or satisfy God's wrath. Both of these relate to the cross work of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. He became the propitiation, the satisfactory payment that satisfied God's wrath. And then uh, we appropriate by faith. Appropriation by faith alone. Romans 3.26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, or righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then I have a whole list of references from chapter 3 <clears throat> that bring this out. Through faith in Jesus, on all who believe, by his blood through faith, justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By the law of faith, a man is justified by faith, justify the circumcised by faith, uncircumcision uncircumcised through faith. Tremendous emphasis on justification by faith. Like I, I like to say, just by faith, with the double entendre. And then uh, note Abraham is the premier illustration of justification by faith alone. Romans 4, 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I mean, it's, that's it. That's all he did. He believed. He did do something. No works. But he did believe. And he goes on to say in Romans 4, 5, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So in summary, here's where we end up. Tremendous illustration of Abraham all the way through chapter 4. He's the father of all believers. He's the model believer. Just by faith, not by works, not by circumcision, not by law. And then, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace. 
And from there, Paul goes on to describe the nature of saving faith as illustrated in Abraham here in Romans 4, 17 through 25. Now, we touched on verse 17 last week, which is where we pick up the train of Paul's thought today. So note there, verse 17, let me just read it and make a couple of comments. Romans 4, 17, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So Abraham believed God, but note how he believed in him. He didn't just believe in the promise of God, but rather in the God of promise. He believed in God's supernatural working power. He believed in God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Well, as we now continue, we find Abraham's faith related to God's promise to make him a father of a multitude when as yet he didn't even have an heir, not the heir of promise. And at this point, he was reproductively dead. So the thought continues, verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, contrary to hope means contrary to all human expectation. In spite of being a hopeless situation, humanly speaking, yet Abraham still in hope believed in God's promise. Now, hope is very closely related to faith. It's part of the faith family in terms of words. But in particular, hope looks to the future for God to fulfill what he has promised. Hope in the New Testament is a certain expectation that God will bring to pass in the future what he has promised. So it is faith with a future twist, if you will. Note the promise that's being rehearsed here, John or Genesis 15:5. Then he brought him outside and said, "Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them." And he said to him, "So shall your descendants be." God promised Abraham an innumerable number of descendants. And Abraham believed God for this promise. And then in this act of faith, God made Abraham the father the model of all believers. Charles Wesley wrote, In hope against all human hope, self-desperate, I believe. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries, It shall be done. That's Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith was not the condition receiving God's promise of an innumerable number of descendants, but it was the basis of God declaring him righteous, and on that basis, making him the spiritual father of all future believers. Verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, God's timing is impeccable. When God wants to make a point, a lot of time he uses timing. 
And we call this providence. You know, providence of God relates to timing, exact timing to make a certain point. Well, God waited until it was physically impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have children. And then he repeated his promise that Abraham would be the father of a multitude. In particular, we see this in Genesis 17. That's the, that's the reference here that we're talking about. Genesis 17, 5, no longer, God is talking to Abram, no, long, no longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. I'm going to give you a whole new name that's reflective of the promise that I'm making to you. For I have made you a father of many nations. Now when the promise was first made to Abraham, that from him would come a great nation, he was 75 years old, as seen in Genesis 12, 1 through 4. At that time, he was still physically able to produce children, as seen in the fact that at age 86, he begot Ishmael through Hagar, as seen in Genesis 16, 1 through 11. But now here in Romans 4, 19, he is about 100 years old. And Sarah is 90, as seen in Genesis 17, 15 through 21. Now, Abraham's faith is essentially the same as earlier, but the circumstances have changed. Now it was totally impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child apart from supernatural intervention. This would require a miracle. I mean, when's the last time you knew of a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old who had a baby? Uh, you understand the nature of the miracle. At this point, uh, there were two impossible problems. Abraham was reproductively dead, and Sarah, who had been barren all along, was at this point undeniably reproductively dead. They had a double dead problem. One thing about dead things is they don't bring forth life. Only God can make that happen. Well, this recalls what Paul had previously said in verse 17, that Abraham believed God, who, quote, gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This dead-to-life theme is prominent in the Abraham story. We see it again when Abraham was tested as he offered up Isaac on the altar, quote, concluding that God was able to raise him up from the dead. That's why he was willing to be obedient to this command. And God says, offer up your son Isaac. And then God being able to raise the dead as seen in the resurrection of Christ, which is where the application goes at the end of this chapter. Well, Abraham believed God to be a God who could bring life out of nothing and could raise the dead. Out of a double dead situation, God performed what was in reality an act of creation and at the same time a resurrection. Bringing the promised child into being was an act of creation and at the same time amounted to resurrection power being applied to the body of both Abraham and Sarah. This was God bringing to life 
a double impossibility, a double impossible situation. But note it says Abraham was not weak in faith. Uh, the text at this point should probably read, he considered his body instead of he did not consider his own body. More reliable manuscripts would lean this way. He did, in fact, consider the reality of, of the deadness involved. You see, Abraham had a thinking faith. He weighed the situation. He faced the brutal reality that he and Sarah, having a child naturally, would be impossible. He made a realistic evaluation and saw this is impossible. And he knew it full well. This was a God-sized problem, meaning he had a problem so big that only God could solve it. Well, what was Abraham's response to this God-sized problem, to this problem of double deadness? Well, verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. The word waver means to be divided, and it is sometimes translated as doubt. In other words, Abraham did not have a divided mind. Well, I think God could do it, maybe, but this is an impossible situation. That's not rational. No, he chose to single-mindedly believe in the power of God. That's where he stood, in faith. By the way, James, talking about faith, says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Abraham was not double-minded when it came to the promise of God. Yes, he weighed the impossible situation, and then he chose to believe God in spite of the seeming impossible circumstances. But, you say, and I hear you say, if you know the story in Genesis 17, what about Abraham falling on his face and flat out laughing when God told him he was to have a son through Sarah. I mean, that is pretty laughable, ridiculous. We read about it, Genesis 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, he didn't say it out loud. <laughs> I mean, this is an audience with God. Uh, and he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? This is ridiculous. It's laughably ridiculous. And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a son? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is so laughably ridiculous. How about Ishmael? <laughs> That's rational. He's already on the scene. It seems that this was Abraham's initial momentary reaction. As on the surface, this seemed like a ridiculous ridiculously impossible proposition. And humanly speaking, it was. But then as he processed it, he quickly came back to faith. And he rested there. His questioning was very temporary. I think it was just a knee-jerk reaction. But as he worked it through, he came to rest solidly on the promise of God. After God explicitly then told Abraham that indeed Sarah would bear him a son, he never wavered after that. Okay, if you're telling me this, God, uh, you know, it's wildly laughable uh, about Ishmael. God says, nope, it's going to be through Sarah. 
He didn't waver. Okay, if you say it, that's the way it is. At this point, as an old man, he had learned a lot about faith. You follow his journey through, there were a few ups and downs. But he had learned a lot about faith, and his faith was strong. If God said it was going to happen, he believed it. God said it, Abraham believed it, and that settled it. Really could say God said it, and that settles it. But it was settled in Abraham's mind as a matter of faith. Well, this temporary struggle shows us that Abraham, the man of faith, was also very human. He had human struggles. And then he came back to faith and did not waver. As we weigh situations, we often, too, have temporary struggles. We struggle through, but we come back to the place of faith, and we rest in God's word. We all know this reality as those who are in process. There are many tests along the way. Are we going to believe God, or are we going to not believe him? Well, Abraham had a settled faith that chose to believe God. Yes, a little struggle momentarily, but came back to, okay, you said it, God, that settles it. Ray Comfort says, there's a, a wise saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Well, that is solid advice when you're dealing with sinful mankind. But the promises of God, a forgiveness of sin, a peace with God through trusting in the Savior, of a new heaven and a new earth, they come from a faithful creator. And there is no greater insult to God than to not believe his promises. Abraham was not weak in faith, but rather was strengthened in faith. His faith bolstered him up. We grow in faith as we respond in faith. We grow stronger. Well, Abraham responded to the promise of God in faith as seen in his act of circumcision in Genesis 17, which it goes on to describe. As Paul said in Romans 4.11, Abraham's circumcision was a sign and seal of his faith and the righteousness uh, which he had by faith. Well, the nature of saving faith is that while it may struggle, at the same time it continues and it gets stronger in the process. I think we have this reflected right at the outset in Romans 1.17, for in it, in context, the gospel believed, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I love W.E. Vine here. From faith points to the initial act, to faith, to the life of faith which issues from it. And that's what we see in Abraham's life. Yes, you have initial faith, but then he continued to grow and was strengthened in his faith. Well, this process, as I say, is seen in the life of Abraham went from one level of faith to another level of faith uh, to where his faith grew ever stronger. Well, as Abraham determined to believe God and was strengthened in the process, in this way he gave glory to God. You see, giving glory to God is ascribing to God what is rightfully due him. It's acknowledging God to be God for who he is. Abraham said, in effect, I can't do this God, you can. I believe in you. That's giving glory to God. Describing to God that he is God and that he can do the impossible. It gives God all the credit for what he has done or promises to do. 
It's trusting God to be true to who he is as the God of creation and the God of resurrection. Now, the rebel suppressors of truth in Romans 1 have the exact opposite response to that of Abraham. We read in Romans 1.21, because although they knew God, they intellectually knew about God, they did not glorify him as God. Well, Abraham did glorify God. He brought him glory in this act of faith. Believing God to do what he has promised is to give him glory. A life of faith gives glory to God. Want to glorify God? Live a life of faith. You know, Israel was out of the land of promise for almost 2,000 years. It was so long that many theologians began to believe that Israel would never again come back to the land and be reestablished as a nation. And because of that, they began to develop an errant theology that God was done with Israel. But there was always a remnant that continued to believe God would yet fulfill his promise to the patriarchs. And sure enough, hope against hope, in 1948, Israel once again became a nation. Now, there are those uh, who are wondering if Israel can survive today. I guess they don't read their Bible, at least not in faith. Whatever the case, it's an example of a lack of faith. Faith believes God for the impossible and rests on the bare word of God, no matter what the circumstances might indicate. I mean, if God said it, if he's promised it, it doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. He's going to do it. That's the faith of Abraham. Faith brings glory to God by simply believing his promises, no matter how impossible the circumstances might indicate. Faith counts what God says to be true, and this brings glory to God. Verse 21, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, this verse has been called one of the clearest definitions for faith found in the Bible. It is descriptive of Abraham's kind of faith that God counts to him for righteousness. Being fully convinced is the idea of being absolutely sure of something. And in this case, it was the promise of God that Abraham would have a son through Sarah in his old age. Now, connect fully convinced with what God had promised, and that equals trust, trust. You see, Abraham trusted the character of God, that he would carry through on his promise. A saving faith is all about trust. We trust in the word of God, in the bare word of God, because God says it, because God promises it. But note it also involved conviction regarding God's power, his ability to perform what he had promised, that he was able to perform. This relates to God's lordship power, his sovereign power over life and death. Faith believes in God for who he is as the almighty who can bring to pass what he says. Because he is Lord God over all. He has the power of life to bring life. The power to bring life even out of death. 
The whole Bible emphasizes that God is a God who can be trusted. And this is the big issue before God. Will you believe in me for who I am? It is the one thing that he demands of people. The very name Yahweh, the most sacred name for God, is the idea that he is an unchanging, faithful God who can be fully trusted. You know, people are fickle. All people on some level are fickle. Yeah, well, I thought I could really trust you, but you were weak there. Didn't come through there. God is always consistent. He's unchanging. A very special word in the Old Testament is the word hesed, often translated as loving kindness. It's the idea of loyal love or steadfast covenant faithfulness. This defines God. He is worthy of our trust, and indeed, he demands it. John Phillips, summarizing, says here, Thus, the principle of faith is explained to us. It is simply taking God at his word and allowing God to be God in any and every kind of situation. Verse 22, and therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was this kind of faith, just described, that was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. And yes, he grew strong in it, but this is the nature of a saving kind of faith. Abraham's kind of faith? It trusted in God to fulfill what was promised. It believed in God's power to make it happen. It endured through the years and indeed grew stronger. This is just really a reaffirmation of the faith Abraham had. Although he was said to be counted righteous on the basis of faith many years before this, as seen in Genesis 15, 6. And actually, Abraham is said to have had faith many years before that, as early as Genesis 12, when by faith he left Ur of the Chaldeans, not knowing where he was going, as noted in the Hall of Faith chapter of Hebrews 11. So in effect, these repeated statements regarding Abraham having his faith accounted to him for righteousness are really confirmation statements regarding the kind of faith that Abraham had that God accounted to him for righteousness. And in each case where this is emphasized, it illustrates the nature of what defines true saving faith. Expositor says, verse 22 probably refers to the original statement of Abraham's justification, emphasizing that his ability to meet the renewed promise of God by unwavering faith was strictly in line with the faith that brought justification at an earlier point. Again, we note that what God counted as righteousness to Abraham was simply faith, faith alone. There's really two great faith chapters in the Bible. That is Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. And really, I want to include the, the last part of Romans 3, since the divisions are not inspired. <laughs> the last part of Romans 3 and Romans 4. The word faith or believe occurs no less than 16 times in Romans 4. Here's the key words. Faith believed 16 times, Romans 4. Impute some form of this 11 times. Righteousness or justify 11 times. Key message, here it is. Faith imputes 
righteousness. That's it. That's Romans 4, illustrated in the life of Abraham. God imputes righteousness to your account on the basis of faith, and faith alone. It's a huge issue. Verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Hey, you got a part in this. The big idea in Romans 4 is that Abraham's faith was imputed to him for righteousness. This is explicitly stated at the beginning, verse 3, and at the end of the chapter, verse 22. And in between, the nature of his faith is described at length. But this illustration of how righteousness, on the basis of how righteousness was imputed to Abraham, on the basis of faith, was not recorded for his sake alone. This principle of justification by faith alone not only applies to Abraham, but is a consistent principle that applies to all believers. All believers are justified by faith in the bare word of God, just like Abraham. Now, while the nature of saving faith today is the very same as that of Abraham, the content is different. You see, Abraham believed God's promise of an heir and many descendants. But today our faith on this side of the cross is in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul will now go on to show. But the nature of saving faith remains the same. Verse 24, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. You know, Abraham had a faith in God in relationship to dead. We have a faith in God in relationship to the dead. And how out of death, God brought life. It's important to note that what God is teaching us about the nature of saving faith in relation to Abraham has application to what constitutes saving faith today. To start with, note the emphasis on death. God brings life out of death. Abraham was reproductively dead. And yet in that deadness, he exhibited the kind of faith that God counts for righteousness. Now that's the major point of the text we are studying this morning. Let's make application, shall we? I mean, that's what Paul's doing. Let's make application. In our natural condition, we are dead in sin. What does death indicate? Well, it indicates two things. The word death, by its very meaning, means separation. In our sin, we are separated from God. And then death signifies total inability. Abraham could do nothing to change his dead situation. But in faith... He gave glory to God. He did do that. He did respond in faith and gave glory to God. I can't do it. You can do it. That's called faith. The one thing he could do, and that by grace, is believe. You say, I don't believe it. Well, you should because it says Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Stated in Romans 4, Twice for emphasis, verse 3 and verse 22. 
The one thing he did do is believe. I mean, that's the story of Abraham. That's the record of the scripture. It's the word of God. Abraham illustrates that we can do absolutely nothing to make ourselves righteous before God other than believe. The example of Abraham emphasizes justification by faith alone. Remember what Romans 4 teaches us. God justifies the ungodly as their faith is accounted to them for righteousness. I mean, how do you get to where you're ungodly to righteous before God? The transition is faith. And then in verse 16, he emphasizes that faith is according to grace. Meaning faith is non-meritorious. Faith is simply the non-meritorious instrument by which we are counted righteous. Now, none seek after God, as Paul says in Romans 3.11. However, as God seeks after us, he convicts us. He invites us. And somewhere in that process, there is a doorway of faith that people either enter through or they refuse to do so. I love this quote from Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. You ought to love Spurgeon, too. If you don't love Spurgeon, you really should check yourself. But uh, Spurgeon said, We follow on while he draws us, glad to obey the voice which once we had despised. But the gist of the matter lies in the turning of the will. This is the gist of the matter. How that is done, no flesh knoweth. It is one of those mysteries that is clearly perceived as a fact. It happens. But the cause of which no tongue can tell and no heart can guess. You know, Spurgeon knew a little something about the Bible. He knew a little something about the whole counsel of God. And his conclusion was, we can't figure this out. I fully concur with Spurgeon here. There is mystery between the sovereign work of God in people's hearts and the human response of faith. The last invitation of the Bible is found in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, where it says, Whosoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's free, but you have to take it. You have to want to take it. Now, we understand that God works in the heart to bring a person to that point. And yet, at the same time, you have to desire. And that involves human response. As Spurgeon says, this turning of the will involves mystery that no one can figure out. Now, I know, got all these theologians, they, they got it figured out. I don't, sorry. All we can say is justification by faith alone, as exhibited in Abraham, and that this faith is according to grace. Again, John Phillips, God's method of saving Abraham and counting him righteous is also God's way of saving us and counting us righteous. Abraham was put into a situation where only faith could avail. And so are we. Same deal. Warren Wiersbe, I like this. That's why I put him up here, you know. 
God must wait until the sinner is dead. He's talking about, you know how Abraham wrestled with this. But he came where it didn't waver. And that's the, the, the sense here. Uh, God must wait until the sinner is dead and unable to save himself before he can release his saving power. As long as the lost sinner thinks he is strong enough to do anything to please God, he cannot be saved by grace. You know, he's still thinking, I'm working my way. It's, it's my efforts. It's, it's what I'm doing. Uh, it was when Abraham admitted that he was dead that God's power went to work in his body. It's when the lost sinner confesses that he is spiritually dead and unable to help himself that God can save him. You come to a point, I can't do it. God help me. It's a thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're my hope, my only way in. I can't do a thing. I'm nailed to the cross. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. God honored that faith. Just like Abraham. Just like Abraham had righteousness imputed to him on the basis of faith alone. So also for us. Do you see why I say this is a hill to die on? This issue of justification by faith alone. And we dare not any, add anything to it. It's not Jesus plus. The second you add anything to it in terms of sacraments or baptism or good works. Or I prayed the right kind of prayer. Whatever it is. You no longer really have salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. For us, the object of our faith is more pointed as seen through the lens of progressive revelation. And the object of our faith is seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, as seen in the gospel. Notice, uh, going back to Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, how is it acquired? Through faith in Jesus Christ. To all, to all and on all who believe. But note here in Romans 4.24, the emphasis of faith is in relation to God the Father who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. However, Jesus made the point that to believe in him is also to believe in God the Father and vice versa. This really is a, a package. See it a lot of places. Let me just bring up 2 John 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Abraham believed God's promise concerning his promised son Isaac. We believe God concerning his promised son Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. 1 John 5.10, he who believes in the Son of God has a witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Note that Paul in Romans 4.24 refers to Jesus as our Lord. The name Jesus literally means God's Savior. Lord means master, and when used of the risen Lord, it always has his deity in view. So Lord means God master. To believe in Jesus as our Lord is to believe in him as our God master, our God savior. Paul always refers to Jesus as the Lord of all believers. We have all believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. As here in Romans 4.24, so also in Romans 10.9 and 10, Paul connects the lordship of Jesus with his resurrection. In Romans 1.4, Paul said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. To believe in the risen Lord, 
To believe in the risen Jesus is to believe in his lordship. Verse 25. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification? Now this last part, raised because of our justification, there's a lot of ink spilt here over that phrase. Someone has said that God's entire redemptive plan is summarized in this final verse of chapter 4. The death and resurrection of Christ are consistently combined in the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again. In shorthand, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, he describes the message as being Jesus died and rose again. Expositors, to believe in a Christ who died for our sins is only half the gospel. The resurrection cannot be omitted. Observe how Paul includes both aspects in 6, 3, and 4 when showing how the work of Christ provides the foundation for Christian living. Now, let's break this down. Delivered up because of our offenses. That's equivalent to saying God the Father gave Jesus over to die for our sins. Now, many think that Romans 4.25 is really a loose paraphrase of Isaiah 53.12 where it says he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Offenses uh, is a word that is often translated as transgressions or trespasses. It's the idea of false steps, things we do wrong. And who was it that delivered Jesus up? Was it Judas? Was it the religious leaders? Was it Rome? Was it Satan? Certainly all of these agents had a role. But really behind it all was God the Father, sovereignly at work. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 says it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. When you will make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Christ was delivered up because of our offenses. As the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He was the God-provided sacrifice to take away our sin. That's one side of the coin. He was then raised because of our justification. What does that mean? Delivered up because of our offenses is grammatically parallel with raised because of our justification. So this is really a package. The death and resurrection of Christ provide the basis for our justification. Now, there are two aspects to justification. Being declared right before God, that's the idea of justification, to, to be declared righteous or right. We are justified on the basis of Christ's blood, and we are justified on the basis of Christ's resurrection. So note these two aspects. Justified from sin by the death of Christ, Romans 5, 9, more than having been now justified by his blood. And then justified to a life standing before God by the resurrection of Christ, raised because of our justification. Justification here in Romans 4.25 is really used in the full orb sense of the conclusion of the whole matter, of what it means to be declared right before God. You see, to be right with God in the final analysis results in resurrection glory that we as all believers will share in via our position in Christ. The death of Christ was for sin. 
and it was a su- sufficient payment for sin. But it would have been incomplete without the resurrection. Imagine, well, you're forgiven. Sorry, you're all going to die and lay in the grave forever. Boy, that's really incomplete, isn't it? I-, I think so. Death must be conquered by life. Christ not only paid for sin with his death, but he gives us life through his resurrection. The death of Christ pays for sin. The resurrection exalts us to a state of glory. That is the ultimate conclusion of justification. Christ was raised to bring this about this end goal of what it means to be right with God. That's the completion of the matter. The full gospel is that our Savior Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10 As believers, we now have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 Our standing now as believers is in relation to our risen Savior. And it's a glorious right standing. Middletown Bible Commentary. There is a negative side. Christ was delivered up to bear our sin with all its guilt and penalty. There is a positive side. Christ was raised again to provide the believer with a brand new place and standing in Christ Jesus. And apart from that standing, we could have no righteousness, no justification. William Newell says, Now justification involves not only negatively the putting away of our guilt, but positively a new place and standing. ESV Study Bible Uh, You can read it. I don't know that I will because I'm running out of time, okay? But I'll put it up there for you. I'll send it out to you. It's a great statement. Apart from the resurrection, how would we know that Jesus' death had paid for our sins and been accepted by God? The resurrection is the ultimate affirmation from God that he was well-pleased and satisfied with Christ's payment for sin. Christ's death and resurrection are one inseparable package when it comes to justification. We are justified by faith in Christ as our Savior and also as our risen Lord. Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord is a package. And a saving faith believes in Christ for who he is as Savior and Lord. From the divine, or rather from the, yeah, from the divine side, note on the overhead here, Uh, justification is provided through the death and resurrection of Christ. Our verse, delivered up because of our offenses, raised because of our justification. From the human side, justification is by faith alone. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Without getting ahead to next week too much, note the connection between verse 25, 425, and 5.1. Again, the chapter divisions are not inspired. Romans 4 is the great chapter in the Bible that emphasizes justification by faith alone. Just as Abraham believed in God who gives life to the dead and it was accounted to him for righteousness, so we as believers also believe in God who gives life to the dead as seen in the death and resurrection of our Lord. And on that basis, the basis of our faith God accounts us as righteous before him. To summarize what we have seen in Romans chapter 4, God imputes righteousness to our account on the basis of faith as illustrated in the life of Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith alone apart from works. Saved by faith alone apart from circumcision, religious rites. Saved by faith alone apart from the law. Abraham's faith is described as 
persevering faith. And the same principles that apply to Abraham's faith apply to us as believers. Well, sometimes people almost seem to put down faith and say things like, it's not really your faith that saves you. Yeah, I just want you to know you can't be saved without it. Uh, you know, it is true that your faith doesn't save you when properly understood. It's not our faith in our faith that saves us, but it's faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that saves us. Faith has to have an object. The object is not our faith. It's Jesus. Christ is the Savior, and our faith is merely the instrument of reception. But faith is all important. Without faith, one cannot please God, Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, one cannot be saved. Indeed, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, after emphasizing Christ as our redemption and our propitiation, Paul at great length launches into this whole emphasis on justification by faith alone. Makes up the greater part of chapter 3, the last part, and chapter 4 of Romans. Paul belabors the point of justification by faith all the way through this whole prolonged section. Want to know faith? Want to know about faith? This is the section. One dare not underestimate the importance of justification by faith alone and the necessity of responding by faith to God's gospel, as Paul calls it in Romans 1.1. God in grace has provided for our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. God's method of saving people is on the basis of faith alone. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. His command is that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And in Romans 1.5, Paul calls this the obedience of faith. D.L. Moody said this, Some say that faith is the gift of God. So is the air, but you have to breathe it. So is bread, but you have to eat it. Some are wanting some miraculous kind of feeling. That's not faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is whence faith comes. It's not for me to sit down and wait for faith to come stealing over me with a strong sensation. But it is for me to take God at his word. Faith is simply taking God at his word. See, Abraham, Romans chapter 4. Saving faith is taking God at his word concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And specifically, we must believe the gospel. That Jesus, as our Savior, died for all of our sins. And as Lord over all, he arose again from the grave the third day. We must believe in him as our personal Savior and Lord. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. The Jew first and also to the Greek. Have you believed on Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Indeed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand together and have our closing song.